When I was about 15 years old, I cut the end of my finger off. I was cooking dinner with my mother and somehow mistook the end of my left index finger for a potato. I remember looking down, realizing the mistake I had made, feeling pain, uh, and then describing what had just happened in the most colorful terms that I could come up with. <laughs> and then I remember distinctly my kid sister, Galen, all of nine years old, looking at our mother and then informing her, Oscar just swore. My sister and I were not close at the time. <laughs> Galen, though, tells this story much differently, and she remembers me cutting myself, she remembers me yelling, and then she remembers immediately running to our neighbor's house while my mom and I went to the emergency room, and then later, over dinner, after we knew everything was fine, then telling my parents that I swore. That was two decades ago, and, and my sister and I are now as close as adult siblings can be. I think she is just about the coolest person I know that I am not married to. <laughs> and I know she is dead wrong in how she tells that story. <laughs> this is a really strange part of memory. Two people can remember the same events, events that they were both at, events that they both remember vividly in completely different ways. Leaving my sister and I aside, it is fascinating how memory diverges based on who we are and the assumptions we bring to the memory. And how we remember shapes how we see the present. This is a fundamental question of memory. That in the aftermath of another election that was supposed to say something about America, in big quotes, say something about America, it bears some attention. I know that Langston Hughes poem well. I go back to it regularly. But what struck me this time as I listened to it in preparation for this sermon was that if you have any belief in American exceptionalism, then the phrase, let America be America again, is almost the exact same phrase as make America great again. And there is a profound disconnect between how Donald Trump thinks of and remembers America and how Langston Hughes thinks of and remembers America. So I want to spend some time unpacking that this morning. And I want to start with this idea, this make America great again. What life experience makes that true? I, I don't think we do each other or ourselves any credit 
when we pretend that a phrase is successful by accident, that it doesn't have the ring of truth to at least some folks in some ways. So we're going to take it seriously this morning. And it's worth talking a little bit out of my own experience. Because here's the thing, I am in my early 30s. <laughs> Unitar is not happy with the direction this sermon is going. <laughs> I'm in my mid-30s. I'm white, I'm male, I'm straight. I enjoy playing video games in my, uh, in my spare time. Uh, that hasn't happened in a while, but I'm from Michigan. I am, by any definition statisticians use, a highly religious voter. I am, to put it plainly, a likely Donald Trump voter in any reasonable statistical model. I grew up without a lot of money, but with the constant admonition that my sister and I could do anything that we set our minds to. And if we failed, it wasn't because of any external force, but because we had not applied ourselves fully. I felt a little guilty. I felt a little guilty when I wasn't a good enough student to go to an Ivy League school. And then my sister showed me up by not just going to an Ivy League school, she went to Cambridge and not the one in Massachusetts. <laughs> a place where they still call it King's College. And when I watched TV or movies as a kid, I could literally see myself in the heroes. I loved Law and Order and the West Wing. And it didn't seem unrealistic to say, sure, that, that's where I could end up. That's a reasonable end career goal for me. I went to a proud liberal arts college and then majored in religious studies, trusting that I would get a job right after. I graduated from college in May of 2008, five months before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Now, in this, I differ from the story of my generation because I am a liberal arts religion major <laughs> that found work and a career in my field. <laughs> but even after finding a career, the message often, right now, is that straight white men have been running things for long enough, and it's time for us to sit down and shut up. The future is female, and queer, and of color. It is not folks who look like me. So there's a lot going on there. There's economic anxiety, to be sure, I don't know any of my friends that went to college and don't have significant student loan debt. The amounts vary. The lucky ones have twenty or $30,000 of debt. The unlucky ones have 10 times that amount. Some are only the equivalent of a car payment. And while unemployment is down, so are stable careers. More than the financial stuff, though, it's the change since I was a kid in, in what is possible. Because folks that look like me, folks that share my background, aren't going to be 
the heroes of stories achieving whatever we want to if we just work hard enough. Most of my cohort is going to string together as many gigs as we can, try not to have any catastrophic setbacks, and really hope for the long term that some predictions about climate change are not fully accurate. Again, here I'm an unusual case. I actually found a career path I love in a city that I love to be in with a spouse who can say the same two things. But even for all that, if I'm honest, I know I will never run for president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I am relatively ambitious, I know that, but there are demographic limits on my ambition. There were 150 years of white, straight, male leadership of Unitarian Universalism, and it's going to take time to center other voices. Time that roughly coincides with at least the length of my career. And I want to be clear, it's really, really important that that's the case. It's really important that us white guys sit down and shut up. We've led long enough and it's time to center others. And if we're really honest, it's impossible for that to happen without it stinging just a little bit. Especially for those who haven't led, but who are just entering into their own stories. So, this idea of making America great again, it doesn't live disconnected from anything in the world. I would love to live in the great America I thought I was growing up in, where I was destined to be a leader by virtue of my innate ability and implicitly in my demographics. I was told, folks like me are told, that we would be successful leaders of our community, our congregations, country and that we would be financially and culturally successful while we were doing it. It would not be that hard. Because, not to put too fine a point on it, America always was America for me. And if this land of opportunity feels any less so, well that's, that's hard. but we know that the same events seen from a different point of view can be remembered very differently. Langston Hughes wrote Let America Be America Again in 1935. And other than some vocabulary that reflects the time of its writing, the poem rings as true now as it did 80 years ago. Hughes starts with a description that would be familiar to Pete Ricketts. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. But then America never was America for me. To Hughes, the American dream was a dream for white folks not accessible to him or any of the groups he speaks from over the course of the poem. The dream is an illusion at best, 
and at worst, a nightmare. We have to struggle with this. We have to grapple with it because it is contrary to the way a lot of us have told the story of America. We talked about the land of opportunity where hard work gets you ahead, where the Voting Rights Act was passed, where there's a horizon open to whoever works hard and shows themselves worthy by their character. But that's not the land that has existed for everyone. And we know that our memory is at times fallible. Memory is affected by how we tell the story and the things that we want to believe about ourselves and the world. And it would be easy to believe that America has always been a land of opportunity, a shining city on the hill. And the folks who haven't had success, who live hard lives in West Baltimore, that's just because they haven't applied themselves, unlike ourselves. That would be easy for someone like me to believe. Or to say, well, you know, Hughes wrote that poem in 1935 at the height of Jim Crow. And since then, I've marched, we've marched. We fixed that in the 60s. Dr. King had a dream, and now we're judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. But here is a poem from Dennis Smith. He's the poet that read the Langston Hughes poem earlier not an elegy for Mike Brown, he wrote in 2015. I am sick of writing this poem, but bring the boy his new name, his same old body, ordinary black dead thing, bring him and we will mourn until we forget what we are mourning. And isn't that what black is being about? Not the joy of it, but the feeling you get when you're looking at your child turn your head, then poof, no more child. That feeling, that's black. Think, once a white girl was kidnapped, and that's the Trojan War. Later, up the block, Troy got shot, and that was Tuesday. Are we not worthy of a city of ash, of a thousand ships launched because we are missing? Always something deserves to be burned. It's never the right thing nowadays. I demand a boy, a war to bring that dead boy back. No matter what his name is this time, I at least demand a song. A song will do just fine. Look at what the Lord has made above Missouri sweet smoke. That poem was from 2015. 80 years after Langston Hughes wrote Make America, America Again. Or hear this statement also from 2015 and from within our own Unitarian Universalism. The movement for black lives calls on the Unitarian Universalist faith, a faith willing to make the bold proclamation that each person inherently matters, to live up to that claim by working towards a future in which black lives are truly valued in our society. We call on UUs to resist, to actively resist notions that black lives only matter if conformed to white middle class norms and to challenge assumptions of worth centered around clothing, diction, education, or other status. Our value is not conditional. 
and is not from 1964. This request to make Unitarian Universalism, Unitarian Universalism again, was made three years ago. The last three or four years in Unitarian Universalism, we've been asked to really grapple with how we remember our own history, which informs how we see each other now. You know, the story that I know well is that UU ministers responded overwhelmingly to the call to Selma, that James Reeb died, that the Voting Rights Act was passed and we've been at the forefront of social change for the last 50 years. I can see myself in that story. I can aspire to the courage of Reeb, the righteous anger of Theodore Parker, the intellectual integrity of William Ellery Channing. And all of those are people that share my appearance and my academic training. This is a different story of Unitarian Universalism than what's remembered by our folks of color where Selma was followed by the nascent Unitarian Universalist Association failing to live up to its obligations and ideals just like it had for generations before, which led to an exodus of leadership of color from Unitarian Universalism that we are just now, 50 years later, starting to recover from, maybe. So how we remember informs what we do now. There are at least two ways of seeing the same events. First, that America is a land of opportunity. Unitarian Universalism is a leader in social justice. Things are generally good. At worst, we have to recapture the energy of Selma, or elect a president who promises to make America the great nation that it once was, again. The second way of remembering is America as the land of the false narrative of freedom, where the open land of the pioneer was taken from the Sioux, the Ponca, the Huron, where our faith is one that talks a good game, but is ultimately a place for privileged white folk on Sunday morning. But the genius of the Hughes poem, the reason I always go back to it, is that it doesn't leave there. It doesn't end with two memories of America, one where the American dream is and was true, and the other where the dream is a joke or a nightmare. No, no. Let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. The land where everyone is free. The land that's mine, the poor man's, Indian's, black man's, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose, plow, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Hughes is right. Black lives of UU are right. The dream that anyone can get ahead, the dream of the land of opportunity for anyone, no matter where you come from or who you are, that, that dream was never fully true. We have fallen short of our ideals. But the fact, the historic fact that we fall short of an ideal is not 
a judgment on the ideal itself. It's not a reason to abandon it. We can remember history as it really happened. And we can try to live up to those ideals to build a better faith and a better country where that dream actually is true, where America is America again, the country that never was yet and yet must be. That is the work in front of us. That is the work in front of our congregations. It is the work in front of our country. I think it is the work in front of each of us in all of the privileged identities that we might hold. And it is hard work, but it is worthwhile. It is worth doing. Amen. There's a, a hymn in our hymnal. The original words are a poem by Lowell. He wrote them in the run-up to the Civil War, in the midst of abolition as a movement. And then Martin Luther King picked them up and used them, among other times, in one of the last sermons that he gave. And we now sing it every once in a while. So will you